KUT is here to keep you and our community informed. As the station delivers exactly what you expect when you need it most, remember that it's financial support from listeners that make it possible. Join today at KUT.org. And thank you. It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate? For two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. That's a spicy We need to change society so everybody can fit in and everyone can afford to live in a decarbonized society. The New Deal is not best understood as, oh, the workers won and everything was great. The New Deal is best understood, I think, and and what we're arguing in in this article, as always a historic compromise. It was never what everyone wanted. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast that takes you into the depths of food history and production. Produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. This season, we're focusing on all things Green New Deal. We won't tell you who to vote for, but we will tell you why your vote is important. I'm Miles Bloxon, assistant producer for The Secret Ingredient, hosted by Tom Philpot, food and agriculture reporter for Mother Jones Magazine, Rebecca McEnroy of KUT Radio, and Raj Patel of the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. Welcome back to The Secret Ingredient. Now, in this season, we're tackling the Green New Deal, and there's no better person to begin that exploration with than Jim Goodman. Jim is a board member with Family Farm Defenders. He's based in Wanawak, Wisconsin. He is a repurposed dairy farmer, and he joins us in the studio now. And by in the studio, of course, I mean by phone uh, from his uh, former farm in Wanawak, Wisconsin. Hello, Jim. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So the occasion for our conversation, the jumping off point, is an essay that our co-hosts Raj Patel and Jim co-wrote together in Jacobin Magazine that was published in April that you can find online. It's called A Green New Deal for Agriculture. Maybe we could start by having you guys explain to us, you know, just sort of what the Green New Deal is and what it has to do with food as a jumping off point. The Green New Deal, if you were to look at the legislation for it, is a sort of placeholder for thinking about how it is that we move to a zero carbon economy in the United States. And its template, as we'll talk about, is the original New Deal. But insofar as the Green New Deal talks about food, it does so in passing. It talks about a more sustainable food system that ensures universal access to healthy food. And it recognizes that uh, it won't be able to achieve this goal without partnering with the producers of food. And in fact, to quote it, it includes a call to, quote, work collaboratively with with farmers and ranchers in the United States to remove pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from the agricultural sector. So it's fairly vague, but it certainly points out that farmers and ranchers in America have a role to play as we move towards a zero carbon economy. But beyond that, there's not a whole lot there. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why we wrote this piece, was to be able to sort of plant a flag and educate folk on some of the history of uh, sort of militant farming in the United States and the visions that farmers and ranchers have for what a sustainable agricultural sector might look like. Yeah, I think you summed that up pretty well, Raj. I, I guess I was initially drawn to the Green New Deal because, you know, while a lot of people assume it's just about energy, renewable energy and getting rid of fossil fuels, which it is, but I was kind of drawn to it because really I think it's a 
sort of a outline, a vague outline for societal overhaul in general, because we can't just work on energy or we can't just work on transportation. We need to change society so everybody can fit in and everyone can afford to live in a decarbonized society. When I started reading about it, I saw that agriculture was not mentioned very much. Since everyone eats every day, I think food has to be a part of the Green New Deal. That's kind of why I got involved with trying to write a little bit about it. Can we talk a little bit about the position of the Green New Deal in agriculture and why it is so vulnerable? Because I feel as if what you mentioned in the beginning was it was immediately criticized by the American Farm Bureau as a proposal that was misguided and uninformed. And I think that it's easy to say something is misguided and uninformed and then be able to add your own expertise and direct that in a certain way if you're so inclined, because that argument carries with it a lot of heft when you're criticizing things that people don't really understand. They think, oh, there's an expert on this. So can you talk a little bit about the role of food in agriculture and the way that it's developed alongside big business and why that criticism could so easily derail this agriculture within the Green New Deal? Just very quickly, it's important to observe that the when the American Farm Bureau says anything, the American Farm Bureau is like the Chamber of Commerce. In fact, it, it emerged from the Chamber of Commerce, had you know roads bureaus and things, uh, and the Farm Bureau was an offspring of the Chambers of Commerce and really sort of set up as an institution that was about a certain vision of the, the capitalist farmer. It would have been weird if the American Farm Bureau had said anything positive about the Green New Deal uh, because so much of their history has been about a, a certain uh, fairly strict sort of conservatism. Um, and that's not just uh, sort of fiscal, but also social conservatism. Um, so, uh, you know, when the Farm Bureau says that the, the Green New Deal and its shift towards a zero carbon economy is uninformed and misguided, that's basically the line from any sort of business institution around the, the challenges of decarbonization that remain ahead. And again, it, it doesn't seem to be a terribly fair criticism, given that the Green New Deal is very thin on policy, but offers a placeholder for ideas that surely would be good for farmers. You know, making sure that everyone is able to eat healthily means more money for rural America, or it could be more money for rural America. And since we don't have the, the actual knowledge of what the policy is going to be, to criticize it flat out, I mean, it's precisely an ideological reaction uh, and not one grounded in any examination of the policy. I think it's, it's interesting that the Farm Bureau would talk about it being you know, ill-informed and misguided because as far as sustainable agricultural policy, I think the Farm Bureau is pretty ill-informed and misguided. But they, as, as pointed out in, in the article, they kind of rode the back of industrial agriculture to where they are today, and now they are in almost any situation chosen as the voice of rural America and the voice of the farmer, even though most of their members do not farm. It's rather sad that mainstream media always goes to the Farm Bureau as opposed to finding the voices of real farmers, sustainable agricultural advocates that know something about how sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture can work because the Farm Bureau is pretty much opposed to all that because it means less money for, for them. Right. So it's sort of industrial agriculture defenders where you are family farmer defenders. And so, of course, it would say something like that. And I just want to interject something about the inherent vagueness of the New Deal resolution, the Green New Deal resolution that we're talking about. And I think that the sort of theory of change behind it was that 
you know, basically, we're not sure. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and and uh, Senator Markey aren't sure exactly how to get to zero emissions by 2030 or whatever the goal is. What we want to do is lay that out as a goal and get social movements to come up and fill fill these blanks in, not just for food, but for every area of sort of the economy. And the reason is precisely because of the existence of organizations like the Farm Bureau. You guys have a really great power analysis in this essay about how you know, basically, we are moving towards zero emissions. We are butting up against massive economic interests with trillions of dollars of infrastructure in place. And they're going to fight back. And there is going to be no meaningful climate legislation if we do it the old way of just putting together a nice bill and putting it through Congress. It's going to get slaughtered. And we've seen that over and over again with energy legislation, with climate legislation, any kind of decent food reform legislation. So what the Green New Deal always was, let's throw these goals out there and get social movements galvanized and organized to fight for various policies. And it's sort of putting it on social movements to fill in the blanks, to figure out, you know, as far as food goes, what would be the, the best policies for farmers, for eaters, etc. So it was vague by design is the only point that I want to make. I want to move into a question, and that is, you know, you guys very properly ground this discussion in the original New Deal. And I want to take us back to the Great Depression. And I think when in the popular imagination, we think of the Great Depression, we think of bread lines, we think of hungry people, we think of, you know, skyrocketing unemployment, malnutrition. But the flip side of that, and this is like sort of the paradox of capital agriculture, was that we had way too much food. There were cycles of overproduction. There were incredibly low prices for things like corn and wheat and and pork. And so you had this paradox of too much cheap food and farmers going out of business, a public that was undernourished and underfed. And one of the challenges of the original New Deal was to fix both those things at once. And I'm wondering if you guys could talk us through the way that the original New Deal took those problems on and, and situate it in, you know, the social movement class struggle that was going on at the time. I mean, it's important to remember there'd been a farm crisis through the 1920s in the United States. There had also been massive amounts of militancy, labor militancy. Uh, we talk now about that there were 20 major strikes last year, but the numbers of people involved in that is over 400,000 people. And that sounds amazing. There were so many strikes and we're seeing amazing sort of walkouts, uh, particularly in the education sector. But then if you look at the 1910s and 1920s, you realize that actually this more recent blip in labor militancy is small compared to what it was like in 1919. In, in 1919, there were 4 million people involved in strikes. About 4% of the United States total population were on strike in 1919 at some point. And that you know, points to the relative strength of the labor movement. Uh, and if you mesh that with an ongoing farm crisis, as, as you say, Tom, through the 1920s, farmers were battling with you know, producing more and more food, and the prices were going down so that by the time of the Great Depression, the thing that's 
really pushing you know, agroecological devastation is the fact that farmers are producing more and more food in order to be able to get just enough money to be able to, to sell it on the market to be able to survive. And so you have simultaneously this glut commodity crops and at the same time uh, farmers who are incredibly poor and driving the dust bowl and the, the sort of evisceration of the land on which they depend. So you, you have a, a range of social forces both in urban America but also in rural America where nearly half of Americans lived uh, through the 1920s and, uh, and early 30s. And you had militant organizations like the National Farmers Union and the, the Grange movement who presented alternatives to the American Farm Bureau. In fact, the, the Farm Bureau was a way of tamping down some of the militancy that was coming from these other, other kinds of grassroots organizations in the United States. And that uh, creates a series of tensions. The New Deal was designed to sort of thread and to, to quiet. So the New Deal is not best understood as, oh, the workers won and everything was great. The New Deal is best understood, I think, and, and what we're arguing in, the, in this article, as always a historic compromise. Um, it was never what everyone wanted, certainly not what workers wanted or what the sort of grassroots farming movements wanted. And that's well worth remembering as we pine back to the days of, oh, wasn't the New Deal great? When you know, commentators on the left and the right point out that for many reasons it didn't do what, whether you're on the left or the right, you wanted it to. You know, I would love to hear the goal of a Green New Deal for agriculture. If, Jim, you and Raj could have everything you wanted going into this and you were leading the way forward for a Green New Deal in agriculture, what would it look like? How would you unite with social movements to make it happen? And also, how would you speak to the farmers of middle America? Well... I'm sure we pointed it out in the article that not all farmers would be in favor of the Green New Deal because they like the system we have as it is. But I think in the last year or two, farmers are realizing the system that we have is not working, and it's much easier to talk to them because they see, like in Wisconsin, for example, three dairy farms a day going out of business. You know, how many more can we lose until we just have a few left? I think they realize that milk prices have been down for five years. I think they, whether they want to admit climate change is caused by human intervention or not, I think they see that we are in a climate crisis because they can't plant in the spring. It's too wet. Sometimes it's too dry in the summer. We've got wildfires. We're starting to see, you know, dust storms around the world. What were the temperatures in equatorial regions last week, close to 120 degrees in some places. So I think farmers aren't stupid. They may be stubborn, but I think they're starting to realize that something has to change. While they're still in business, they would hope it would change to their benefit. And I think that makes it much easier to talk to them and to say, look, the system we've got is not working. We're not feeding the world because there are more people starving and hungry than ever. And you can go back to when the original New Deal was put in place. Bad prices, people hungry, uh, labor unrest, climate disaster, were there again. So if they know anything about history, they have to understand that the parallels here are pretty, pretty precise. And I think social movements, uh, environmental groups, animal welfare groups, maybe are starting to realize that an agriculture that was less dependent on massive livestock CAFO feeding operations and massive productions of corn and soybean monoculture might have been a system that was better, that took better care of the land, because as we saw after the farm crisis of the 80s, 
when we started into the real uptick in industrialized agriculture with GM crops and more planting fence row to fence row, that's when we really started to see a lot of environmental problems with soil erosion and lakes filling in. So I think maybe we are at a a moment in time when farmers and civil society have to understand the problems that each of them have been facing and come to a point where we where they both can say, well, the agricultural system that we've been working under for the past, ever since World War II, basically, hasn't worked quite as well as it was promised. And we need to make some some drastic changes really fast. Well, you know, there's all different kinds of farming, but um, and farming is different in different regions. But where you are, Jim, in the Midwest, you know, you're in part of the Corn Belt it's an extremely important farming region. It's where all the corn and soybeans that basically fuel the food system and go into that, those CAFOs that you were just talking about, those enormous concentration, those buildings that concentrate pigs by the thousands and chickens by the ten thousands. It's where all that, you know, the corn and soybeans that feeds that entire system comes from. And I was just there a couple of weeks ago, and it is in a state of really dire crisis. It's been raining nonstop. All the climate models say that in that area, in particular, you're going to see wetter springs and more harsh rain events. And it's not only blocking this year's planting, but it is also eroding massive amounts of soil. In a good year, in an average year, you know, farms in that region lose about five tons of topsoil per acre, and the natural replacement rate is a half a ton. So in an average year, they're losing it at 10 times the pace of uh, replacement. And in a year like this, the number goes up to 20, 30, 40, 50, because, um, you know, you've got all this bare ground to open up to these massive harsh rains. And you guys in this essay come up with an idea that's not a new idea. It's a very old idea that would seem to elegantly solve a bunch of problems, and that is parity pricing. And I wonder if you guys can talk us through that, the history of it, and how it could be put into effect today to solve some of these crises that we're talking about, including the one I just mentioned of you know massive amounts of bare ground every spring open to the elements, and also the this sort of cheap corn and soybeans that allows this CAFO system, the system of concentrating animals and their manure in one place, which causes all kinds of environmental problems, how parity could take care of a couple of those problems at once, and what are the problems that parity could could also cause, and how could those problems be addressed? Well, I'll start out and briefly put my two cents in, and then Raj can expand on it. Basically, parity pricing is just basing the price that a farmer gets paid for whatever he produces on how much it costs him to produce it, the hope being that he's going to make a decent living by doing that. And parity pricing basically was finished in the 80s during the Reagan presidency. And if you think back to the 80s, as I mentioned earlier, that was the time when we really started the uptick in industrial agricultural production. And as that happened... And we had more farm consolidation, farms getting bigger and bigger, and prices going down because they were producing more and more. The only way for farmers to make a living was to spread their fixed costs out over more acres of ground or more numbers of livestock. Thus, we started putting in big feedlots and hog confinement, poultry confinement, and farms getting bigger and bigger with thousands of acres instead of hundreds of acres. Parity pricing 
were it to be reinstituted, would allow farmers to be less concentrated. Uh, it would enable farmers in places like Iowa, where every farm used to raise cattle and pigs as part of their crop rotation, so they only had to plant corn on any given field once every four years or so. They had pastures along the streams and rivers where they could raise their cattle as opposed to farming directly up to the stream, so they had soil erosion. So parity pricing, you know, when farmers make a fair living, they just tend to do a better job because they're not stressed into having to get bigger and bigger to spread their costs out over larger-scale production. So it, it only makes sense to me that when people are paid better, paid fairly, they're allowed to make better decisions for themselves and the environment as well. But so you get more expensive corn and soybeans. What does it mean for those CAFOs? Well, maybe it means the CAFOs go out of business. I think that uh, we're raising so much meat now, and if you look at all the, the like the pork promotion people and the beef board, their function is to try and get people to eat more all the time, when in effect we're probably eating way too much livestock product already, and we need to cut back on that because it's, environmentally it's bad, and the, the feed conversion, the amount of energy that goes into making a pound of meat as compared to growing grains, uh, it, it's just a waste of energy. And part of the Green New Deal would indicate we can't do things like that anymore. And, I mean, uh, j- just to flesh that out a little bit, I mean, when parity pricing is, when it happens, uh, you would think, well, what's stopping farmers from just producing ad infinitum for this higher price? And parity pricing comes with a recognition that there is such a thing as overproduction. And that's tremendously important because the idea of parity pricing is not that the government is now entering the market and providing a new higher price for all farmers everywhere farmers should just produce and produce and produce. There's a limit because what happens to all this grain? In the original idea for parity pricing, there was something called an ever-normal granary, which the government would manage a public stockpile of grain so that in good years the government would take it in and in the bad years the government would let it out and provide stability not just for farmers but also for consumers. And I think that that's one of the interesting things about the idea of parity pricing is that it demands that we think about the consumer end of the equation, whereas at the moment, the way that the consumers get thought of in the current sort of farm and food complex is through things like SNAP, uh, or you know, what used to be called food stamps. But the idea there is that people should continue to eat as much cheap food as possible, and that would come from sort of government surpluses, but also through the, the cheap commodity food system that, again, is not terribly sustainable, and that doesn't belong as a transformation towards a zero-carbon economy. Well, and I think one final point maybe on on parity pricing, it's kind of like a three-legged stool. You have the have-to-have production control, as Raj mentioned, because you can't just keep producing and producing. You have to have fair pricing. And the third leg would be some sort of import regulation, because one country may institute a really good program to protect their farmers and their environment and their consumers, but... In a global economy, they can buy stuff all over the world, and that has to be limited as well. And all countries need to figure out that we feed our own people first, and then we trade for whatever we grow that they don't or whatever we need that we can't produce enough of. So, I mean, Jim, when you see the production management system in Canada, are you you jealous? And if you are, why? Well, I am, because their farms 
basically remained at the same size or have grown some since they instituted the program in the, you know, in the 60s. The farmers are guaranteed a, a fair price for their milk. Uh, the consumers have Canadian milk and, and dairy products. And the government doesn't have to put any subsidies into the program because it's run by the farmers and the processors. They every year decide how much production they need. If they need more, they let the farmers produce more. If they need less, everybody cuts back. And it's not just the small farmers that cut back, it's everybody. So in that way, um, small farms have been able to stay in business. And farms have not needed to get huge, and they don't have confinement dairies anywhere near the scale that we do. There are problems with it, but uh, everything has a problem. And I think they've worked around it to the point that pretty much everyone in Canada is in favor of it, given that there's Probably a few farms that think they could get rich if they got bigger. And, uh, you know, we saw the same thing in, in the European Union when they took their supply management off. Farms started producing more, and eventually the government had to institute subsidies to keep them in business because they overproduced. I just want to just interject really quick that, you know, you guys note in this paper the concept of hegemony from Gramsci and then sort of con- being able to control what the common sense is to get sort of big interest in play to control what the common sense is. And we should just note that one thing that unites President Obama and President Trump is that as much as they disagreed on, they both wanted to drive a stake through the heart of Canada's supply management system for milk. And have both both tried really, really hard. Obama through the TPP, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and Trump just with his blustering rhetoric and trade war brinkmanship, have, he's made a huge target of the Canadian supply management system. And it's just that sort of thing. It's sort of this uh, this dangerous idea that it would be, um, in, in, you know, because of the danger of contagion, the dairy farmers in the United States start thinking like this, that would be just awful. So we have to kill it in Canada. One of the things I would love for you guys to talk about is who needs to be convinced for, that mm-hmm. this is a part of the the Green New Deal? Who are you really trying to convince with this argument? And what does implementation and change look like? I mean, Jim, if, if, if I can just stack a, another sort of layer onto that question, I mean, the particularly given Tom's point that, in fact, folk in farm country have no reason to trust Democrats. And, and now here come some coastal Democrats with ideas about how they're from the government and they're going to make everything better. I mean, there's a substantial war that's been lost in terms of representing what an alternative food system might look like. And, you know, a lot of those wounds have been inflicted by the Democrats. One can see that if one's a reasonable farmer, having this sort of confluence of of policy from both Democrats and Republicans historically makes one suspicious about now this new vision. Uh, And so I'm wondering if you can sort of speak to that and speak to, well, who do you have to convince and how do you do that, given the, the long history of what it is that Democratic as well as Republican moves in farming have done? Well, I guess having lived all my life being a farmer, and I mentioned before, we can tend to be stubborn. I, I think that, that farmers really, really have to be focused on to convince them that the Green New Deal is something they need to understand and they need to, I think it was mentioned before on the call, they need to go back to a system that worked better. This doesn't mean milking cows by hand or picking up hay in the field with a fork anymore, but it just means you don't have to farm 10,000 acres or have 20,000 head of cattle in your yard. Consumers, I think, are already on the right track to wanting more local food, to wanting more nutritious food. 
I think the health community has been on that path for a long time. So I think the seeds are already there. I think there's a lot of people that understand. But I think convincing farmers that this would be a way for them to make a decent living and not have quite so much burden of worry about the weather and about planting thousands of acres, uh, they might actually be able to spend more time with their family, as, as everyone says they always want to do. Uh, the people that are never going to be convinced are the agribusiness industry, because they are the ones that profit off the system we have. And I guess the only way to convince them is to stop buying from them, stop selling to them, because we just can't depend on them anymore. We can't let them control our lives. I'm a little bit curious as to, say farmers do really get behind the Green New Deal. Where are efforts to make change? Where are the connections with the social movements, and how are they intervening to make this change happen, or where can they possibly intervene? Well, I think one of the first places would be in in soil and water protection. Uh, you know, they, they call water the new oil because our resources are shrinking and becoming more polluted. Um, and I think that environmental groups that have been working on water issues um, would be a good place to start uh, working with farmers on that same issue of putting more land back into grass production, uh, more protection for rivers and streams. That would be one place that would seem to me a, a, an easy point to start at. Uh, but of course, this all, you know, it's, you can't pick any one thing out of the Green New Deal and say this is, this is where, we ha- where we have to start. I think it all has to kind of work together in that we work on protecting the environment, part of which would be getting off fossil fuels, part of which is protecting soil and water. But that can't happen unless farmers get paid a decent price for doing environmentally sustainable practices. And that can't happen unless they get more for what they produce. And that can't happen unless everyone gets paid a fair wage so they can buy that produce. So it's a very complicated plan and I think, you know, we'd mentioned how it was vague, but it was done that way intentionally. So everyone who has a particular area of expertise and concern can put their ideas in, hopefully, in a way that will all work together. But just to play devil's advocate here, Jim, I mean, I mean I've got family in California uh, who farm and would very much like to get more water than they're getting at the moment. And they see the EPA and the California Water Board and environmentalists as the most implacable enemy. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why the normally left-leaning National Farmers Union has also come out against the Green New Deal, at least at the national level. This is not to deprecate from the point about water resources, but it is to say it's going to be hard. I'm struggling to think about how it is to have this conversation with my folk in California. But if the National Farmers Union isn't behind this, what is to be done? Well, that's a good question. I guess if it were easy to make these changes, we probably would have done them long ago. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I can't directly answer your question on how you convince those people because, yeah, there certainly are regional differences. But maybe going back to the original New Deal, I'm sure there was plenty of opposition to certain parts of that. And the government just said, well, this is the way it's going to have to be because we have to provide a national effort to change things. Say you're starting in somewhere like Iowa. Like, there's going to be a lot of political movement in Iowa. There already is right now. Iowa is this place where it is dinner table conversation. Drinking water is something people talk about all the time because it is so 
horrifying. And it's very difficult to get clean, good drinking water. And that's something that has changed over the last 10 years Mm -hmm. rapidly. So that's a conversation that people are going to be having already. And now with all of the politicians in Iowa, where is the Green New Deal going to be in those conversations? Mm -hmm. Well, let me me just jump in there as someone who's been reporting on Iowa. And I want to get Raj and Jim's perspective as well. But the thing about Iowa is that the opening salvo in this essay about hegemony and interests sort of rolling up and controlling sort of the way the public thinks about things, you won't find a better example of that than Iowa. The politicians there are so deeply controlled by agribusiness. President Trump, when he wanted to sort of mollify farmers because he was talking about, you know, basically cracking down on their labor supply by, you know, doing all of these cruel activities and actions to immigrants. And he was also talking about destroying their markets by the saber rattling with China, which, you know, Iowa farms are completely dependent on the the China market to sort of buy its uh, surpluses. Um, When he needed to mollify farmers in Iowa, what President Trump did was appoint their governor, Terry Branstad, to go to China as a Chinese ambassador. As he put it, go sell soybeans to China. And so literally the former governor, the twice, I think three times elected governor, Terry Branstad, is now the Chinese ambassador trying to talk the Chinese into buying American soybeans. And so the politics in Iowa are paradoxical. It's exactly what you said, Rebecca, that wells are poisoned, that um, towns are getting water high in nitrates, that cities like Des Moines are paying millions of dollars every year to get them out. Um, It is causing unrest, it's causing tension, and maybe it will spark a change in the politics down the road. But the, the one thing that I have seen from talking to people in Iowa is that when you talk about When you talk about polluted water, it gets the hackles of the Farm Bureau and the farmers that are really behind them, it gets their hackles up. And they they basically say that, oh, nitrates are fine. Um, You know, they they don't cause any trouble. That's all complete nonsense. They, They cause cancer. They cause birth defects. But people are concerned about their own water. I think that the sort of wedge that you can drive, and it's mentioned in this essay, is the topic of monopoly and corporate consolidation. When you talk to farmers there about clean water, they may get defensive. When you say, look, um, there were 15 seed companies uh, 20, 25 years ago. Now there are essentially two. Um, there, you, you know, when you were selling your pigs two decades ago, you had all different kinds of slaughterhouses to sell to. Now you've got a couple and you're, you probably have to have a contract if you want to get any kind of decent return. Um, those issues start to resonate. And I think that issue of corporate consolidation and exposing the way that the politicians there have worked along with those companies is is the wedge that you can drive in Iowa. Is there something kind of fatalistic about those arguments when you talk to farmers about that, Tom? Um, yeah, there is a certain fatalism. There is a certain, um, you know, it's like when it's August in Austin and it's 105 degrees outside, there's nothing much we can do about it, right? And we all sort of complain about it and get along with our business. Or when it's negative 20 in Chicago in the winter, it's beyond your control. And there is that sort of resignation, I think. But, um, you know, there was a politician named J.D. Shulton who ran against Steve King. Uh, Steve King is the ultra-right, you know, white nationalist representative out of uh, one of Iowa's four districts. This J.D. Shulton guy ran against him in 2018, 
and got within two percentage points. And uh, Steve King usually wins by 15 or 20 percentage points. And the issues that J.D. Shulton uh, pushed was exactly corporate consolidation. And he got some um, he got some good um, traction with that. You know, the other thing was that Steve King's white nationalism became a, a problem. He was going to see white nationalist figures in Europe. It was getting coverage in the press. And the Republican Party even had to, you know, sort of distance itself from him. And that was part of the reason why he he did so badly. But that is being tested as an issue in Iowa. And both Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren have put out very strong policy proposals against consolidation, against sort of, you know, for breaking up these monopolies. And that is seeming to show some traction in Iowa. I think those are great points, Tom. And we have, you know, similar things in Wisconsin. You mentioned the seed companies. Farmers realize they don't have the choices they did as to where they can buy seed. They don't have the choices where they can market their milk or their cattle or their beef. They don't have the choices of marketing their grain. There's only a few places that you can sell it to because all the small-town co-ops have dried up. Uh, in our small town here, we had a, a big feed mill that served people for miles around. It's completely gone now. They tore it down and buried it. There's just a patch of gravel where a big feed mill used to stand. You mentioned the water. In Wisconsin, uh, we've got places where out towards the Dorp County Peninsula, people turn on their water and it runs brown because there's so much manure seeping into the groundwater. You know, and issues like this really get people's attention, be they farmers or consumers. And as I mentioned before, I think we're at a point where people are realizing that, yeah, it didn't used to be this way, and we have to change things. You know, when you mention, yeah, it didn't used to be this way, I'm really curious as to who is around now farming, who remembers how it used to be, and who can take on that challenge again. What have families who, during the 80s and during consolidation, sold everything and gave up their family farms, and now their kids are scattered around the United States, like who's really going to bring back an old model now? Is it possible to bring that back? Or has that kind of been sold downstream, as it were? Well, I, I think as far as farmers who remember the way it used to be would mostly be my age, you know, around retirement, who began farming in the 70s when things were still pretty good. And if they were lucky, made it through the 80s and then saw the big changes and uh, you know, my dad was farming with me at that time, and he farmed through the Depression and the Dust Bowl. And uh, I think anyone who grew up in a family like that uh, learned a lot of lessons from, from their parents of, of the way it used to be during those tough years and how things got better once there were sensible programs put in place. And, of course, now we've seen almost all the programs of the New Deal uh, gotten rid of, uh, Social Security being one that they're still working on. So I think the people my age that are at or near retirement or the ones just beyond remember what it used to be like. Whether we can be a force to change things, I hope so. You know, there's a lot of young people who would love to farm but really don't remember all these things that went on, and now all they see is farmlands priced so high they can't buy it. There is that learning curve, and I think the people that remember the way things used to be are, are going to have to be out there with some answers and stories to 
try and turn the tide back. Yeah. Where are those connections? Like, where are those links in the chain? Because I think like La Via Campesina, that project is really an interesting one to bring young people into farming. Are there programs like that that you're looking at to speak to about reconnecting where that fissure, where that has been disconnected by the corporate farms and where things have kind of fallen by the wayside with those generational links that you speak about? Where are those efforts to connect and reconnect memory with social movements? I want to hear from Jim. Part of the the work that's ahead is the National Farmers Union has come out uh, against the Green New Deal, but not everyone in the NFU is on board with that. And you're certainly seeing a group like Farmers and Ranchers for a Green New Deal talking about alternatives and remembering some of the militancy that the National Farmers Union once had, the NFU once brought to discussions around the Green New Deal. But I also think that uh, part of this alliance making is still to come. Uh, I mean, I, I think that there are ways of having this conversation that don't bring in Democrats, for example, but talk about faith or talk about children's health, things that get to do an end run around some of the sclerotic politics around of saying, well, you know, if, if the Democrats are doing it, then I'm against it, and much more help to bring together and reform some of the alliances that have been atrophied through uh, the long-term hegemony of the right. So, you know, if one imagines a reconfigured counter-hegemonic movement, the folk who are in it are certainly, you know, farmers, but also farm workers, you know, precisely been ex- excluded from uh, the discussions around the food system, but also food service workers, you know, folk on the front lines, for example, serving school meals, who are often vilified, you know, when one thinks of Jamie Oliver versus the school lunch ladies. I'm on the side of the lunch ladies here. Uh, you know, those food service workers are absolutely at the front lines of feeding and providing care to you know, generations of Americans. It would be appalling if they weren't part of the kinds of counter-hegemonic movements that we see towards making sure that everyone gets to eat good, healthy food. I certainly think that there are ways in which one can imagine this reconfigured uh, alliance, but I, I think part of it is drawing on some of the past history, but some of it is also about breaking with it, reframing the, the narratives of what was portrayed as good for America being absolutely bad for you and your family. Well, I think those are, are good points, Raj, that it's not just about breaking the system, but it's about people coming into it who could care less about what the system is or what it used to be, but they understand that they want to farm and the system as it is now will not allow them to do that. So they're just saying, we're going to do our own thing. And if you walk around any farmer's market, the majority of the vendors are younger farmers. I mean, there's still some old people that have been doing it for years, but there aren't many old people starting in a direct marketing. The new people in, in direct marketing at farmer's markets, CSAs, selling to restaurants are younger people, and they just decided, here's the way that we want to farm. This is the only way we can get into it, to do it on a small scale, but to do it very well. And so I think that's an entry point. And I think in Wisconsin, for example, uh, the state farmers union is, I would say, kind of dominated by younger farmers, by new people who want an organization so they can work together. Farmers unions seem to be the best hope, and they're really changing it. And I think the, the Wisconsin chapter is maybe a little bit of a standout amongst the NFU folks because they're looking at farming a different way, and they're not going along with the status quo. So I think that has to be a big part of the change, letting young people get started, letting them do their own thing, because uh, we can't force them 
into farming the old way, and they can't afford the farm that way. You know, one of the most powerful things about the Green New Deal, the sort of theory behind it, is that it acknowledges that the people who are going to pay the highest price from climate change and the people who are already paying the highest price from climate change are vulnerable communities, um, whether it be in the United States or in the global south today, that people at the very cutting edge of climate change are vulnerable communities. And it explicitly says in the Green New Deal resolution that they have to be at the center of the conversation. And it also mentions that there, and you guys get at this in the, in the essay in a really elegant way, that there's a reparative aspect to the Green New Deal and that there's been so much injustice around environmental injustice, climate injustice that, that's happened, that part of the challenge is to redress that. And there's a political side to it too, because if you ignore those issues and you just come out climate policy with a wonks uh, idea of, you know, here are the best policies for drawing, drawing down carbon, you're not going to get any social movement support. The Green New Deal idea broadens the base of support by saying the most vulnerable and populous communities have to be at the center of it. And so in terms of farming, you guys have a really elegant section in this paper about the way that the U.S. is a settler colonial society based on land theft. And so when we talk about the family farm, in the United States, there is this complication that where everyone who farms, including the little farm that I worked on in North Carolina, um, Jim's farm, this was all land that was taken completely without any justification or legality beyond just sort of brute American exceptionalism. We're taking this, therefore it is right. And um, I'm wondering, you know, how a Green New Deal for food can take that into account and acknowledge it and still develop a broad base among farmers. I think it's a really, really big challenge. I'll just say up front. I'd agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I've thought about that over the years when I was farming, that what gives me the right to this land, what gives anyone the right to it, because the indigenous ownership principles didn't allow for land ownership, but we, as you said, threw that all out and took it away from them. I think maybe in parts of the global south, that sentiment of not really personally owning the land might be a little stronger. The farms are smaller. The people have a more intimate connection to the land than they do here, where better than 50% of the land is farmed by someone other than the person that owns. So that makes it kind of difficult to have a connection to the land when you don't farm it yourself. But as to how we can address that colonialism question, I'm not really sure. I think that part of the answer has to be in giving the indigenous, wherever they live in the world, a seat at the table in discussions. I think that the tribes in the United States here are trying to get involved in the discussion, be it through fighting pipelines or whatever across their ancestral land. So we have to have respect for that. And well, not just respect, we have to welcome that part of the discussion. What role, if any, can organizations like the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust and other land reform social movement groups play in that relationship? 
I mean, the folk at SILT, the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, certainly they're bringing the conversation around the injustice in land inequality in the United States to the table. Uh, and I think that that's you know, vitally important. The way that they're trying to address some of the land access issues is through conservation easement. And so farmers who want to make sure that land is farmed organically in perpetuity will deed their land to, to SILT, and then SILT will, will find organic farmers to, to be on that land, make it available to them at less than market rates on the understanding that uh, this land will pass from family to family and be free of the, the sort of bounds of property. And so th- there's a way in which um, organizations like SILT and other land trusts are trying to take land out of the market system. That's certainly one way of doing it. But I think it's important also to look at what's happening in Congress right now. We're having hearings on reparations, which was unthinkable under the Obama administration. And yet here we are uh, finally having at least the conversation. Uh, and I think that if we're going to embrace, as as Jim suggests, these very difficult questions, having movements of, of people of color who have been historically trafficked, evicted from land as part of this conversation is vital. And uh, and I think also to, to your point, Tom, the the Green New Deal conversation at the moment is a little parochial, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's, it's all about America, 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 which at some level that's fine. But when you do that, you erase uh, all the reasons America has written itself into the international agricultural system, either through soybean exports or through long histories of, uh, you know, U.S. corporations transforming other parts of the world into places that are literally banana republics. Uh, And so uh, I do think that there has to be a reparative element that is precisely about having the U.S. address its debt and what it owes. And I think these hearings in Congress around reparations are an excellent starting point to the broader conversations about what uh, the United States of America owes indigenous people and what the United States of America owes the rest of the planet in which it has interfered um, and continues to interfere uh, well into the 21st century. You know, another another reckoning that I think has to be made is that the original New Deal, a lot of the legislation that passed around worker protections that were extremely important to this day, you know, things like increased pay for overtime, I think minimum wages for sure. The way that they got through Congress, and you guys do a really great job in this essay of showing, as Raj said earlier, the Green New Deal, um, the original New Deal was a compromise between all these various forces and labor because of the, the political situation, economic situation. Labor gained a bunch of power, also through its own organizing, it gained more power probably than it's ever had in, in American history during that period, and was able to ramp through some really important reforms. But because of the power of landholding elites, uh, mainly in the South, a lot of those protections were explicitly denied farm workers. And one of the reasons why was that in the American South at that time, farm labor was was black Mm -hmm. and um, it would be unacceptable to the social power of these landholders to have to treat these workers with respect. I don't know the influence of big California landowners at the time, But the impact also there was huge because the labor there at that time already was largely Mexican national. People working on the farms in California were Mexican nationals. They were excluded from these protections. And it was explicitly, you know, sort of racist Democrats in the South had to be brought on board. And the way to bring them on board was to let them exclude essentially black workers. Also, um, domestic workers were excluded from these protections. I think that Ocasio-Cortez has done a great job of bringing those issues to the center. But I guess my question for you guys is how do we get, you know, earlier, Raj, you mentioned food system workers 
in the United States being one of the lowest income rungs, one of the most exploited groups of workers that there is, also one of the largest. What would a Green New Deal look like for food system workers, whether it be in slaughterhouses, in you know other giant food factories, in restaurants? What would that look like? Well, it would look a lot better than what we have now. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that that farm workers or restaurant workers are a really important piece of this whole Green New Deal puzzle. You know, you look at all the the farm workers milking cows in Wisconsin or working in vegetables and fruits in the West Coast. Without those workers, the system we have would basically collapse because no one else wants to do that work. And the reason that those workers are here in the first place is because our agricultural economy, dumping corn into Mexico and Central America, put those farmers out of business, and their only choice was to come north looking for work. And I think almost any farmer I've ever talked to who employs Central Americans on their dairy say that they're great, they're wonderful workers, they're hard workers, they care about the animals. And I think in a lot of cases, perhaps more so in the West where they're working more in in vegetables, these people want their own land. I think that's kind of their ultimate goal, that they would own a few acres someday. How can we figure out a way that that could work? Maybe through land trust, that people who own a large portion of land and don't want it farmed industrially would figure out a mechanism to divide that up into small plots for workers that... uh, are working for industrial corporations now. Yeah, I think that the, the farm workers, the, the, the restaurant workers, the people that work in slaughterhouses can have a big input into changing the system because they are here as victims of the system initially and they're still working as victims of the system now and they really see the need for change in the system and I think we need to tap into that. That, of course, would matter in terms of parity pricing then, wouldn't it? Because if one is paying dignified wages to workers on farms, the price of food is going to go up, the costs will go up, so the parity price will go up, so the price of food will go up, so there will be rebellion in the United States unless there is an equal and opposite counterbalancing of that in terms of people's income, whether they're on farms or in the cities. That's the Gordian knot, I think, of the Green New Deal, and it's one that a lot of organizing is going to have to cut. And it seems like, given the inequality numbers that we see in this society, the rather simple solution to that is to take more money from the 1% and distribute it more broadly through the rest of the economy. That way you can have higher wages that can pay for better food. Will parity pricing protect farm workers? Like, even if workers are getting their own plot of land, they're still working to employ other farm workers to help them produce that. So will parity pricing protect all farm workers in that system? Uh, It will not. That's a really good question. Parity pricing on its own, you know, wouldn't have much to say about that. So you would have to couple parity pricing with strong worker protections alongside of it. Well, and I think, you know, probably a benefit in that area is that people want fair wages for workers no matter what they do. And so, it's not just the amount of, of workers in agriculture is a small percentage of the workers in general, but when everyone is coming up now for the need of everyone being paid fairly, that can take in agricultural workers as well. That's right. It is really mm-hmm. interesting. Like, remember we did that show right after Trump was elected with, who was it that was talking about restaurant workers? The NYU professor. Mm-hmm. What's his name? Yeah. He was fantastic. Like, restaurant workers were basically, you know, voting on the same ballot 
for eliminating tipped wages and Trump at the same time. I mean, what type of messaging can unite people like that? Farm workers with restaurant workers with and with a consumer, like what type of what type of messaging can speak to all of that within the Green New Deal? It's hard because on the one hand, you've got that, you know, the language, as Jim was mentioning, of like everyone knows that we need to be paying more more wages. And then, you know, when we were talking to Saru Jayaraman about tipping, uh, and the racist history and the sexist history of tipping. You've got on the other side of that the issue that, look, if you're on minimum wage and you want to feed your family, it's not going to be welcome news that someone comes to you and says, hey, the price of food is going to double now so that everyone gets a fair wage if you don't get a slice of that. And if you're in the most exploited part of the economy, that's unlikely to be the case. I think that would be an argument with getting rid of coal mines. You know, you can't just shut the coal mines down and say, well, sorry, fellas, you worked there for all your lives, but... We're in a new age now, and you're going to have to find another job. Part of the Green New Deal, I think it is intended that it has to treat all workers fairly, the ones that lose their jobs because of a changing economy or changing energy infrastructure, as well as ones that continue with what they do. They all have to get paid fairly. If their job is eliminated, they have to have some sort of a transition as part of the Green New Deal. Jim, are there things that you'd like to say that we haven't yet hit on? You know, I I guess the initial point in the beginning that it was a a vaguely outlined plan because it needs filling in by people who have expertise in different areas, and it has to be an all-encompassing plan that takes into account every part of society from fair wages to the environment to energy to uh, insurance, education, and everything, and we need society changing changes. I like that. Beautiful. In that case... Jim, thank you so much for your time and your your thoughts and your expertise and your insight and the organizing that you're about to undertake. And we're looking forward to having you back on the show so you can tell us, uh, after the Green New Deal has been achieved, how you did it. But until then, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you all. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Bye. Cheers. Jim Goodman is an organic dairy farmer in Wisconsin and a board member of Family Farm Defenders. He blogs for the National Family Farm Coalition. For more on The Secret Ingredient podcast, visit our website. It's thesecretingredient.org. And please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review while you're there. We appreciate your support. Raj Patel is the author of A History of the World and Seven Cheap Things and a professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. Rebecca McEnroy is a host and executive producer at KUT. And Tom Philpott is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones. For KUT, I'm Miles Bloxon. Thanks for listening. What do you want to know about Austin? When can you call yourself a real Austinite? How come our traffic lights are not synchronized? How is it that Mopac is ad-free? Get the answers from KUT's AT Explain project. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts.